everybody. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're watching School Psych Podcast. Uh, real excited, uh, you know, to to dive into this before um, I've, I know I've got off for you know holiday weekend, um, so that's really nice. We don't have to worry about work tomorrow. Um, but yeah, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to talk about how you can participate live tonight. Rebecca. Hello, everybody. I'm Rebecca, as Rachel said, and I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And I'm so excited for this conversation tonight on resilience and uh, measuring resilience and intervening on resilience for children and students in schools and adults. And um, I would love to hear your thoughts, especially if you tuned in last time, we talked about trauma-informed practices. So I think this is a really great follow-up to that. We'd love to hear your experiences, what's going on in your schools right now, what you wish for, what, what kinds of interventions you um, would like to implement. So questions, comments, anything like that, please feel free to sign right into your YouTube account and comment along the video screen if you're watching us live. If you're watching or listening later in the week or after the live broadcast, please also continue to comment. You can do so on either Facebook page, School Psych, Your School Psychologist, in messages or under the uh, post for today's broadcast, or on the School Psych podcast page, of course, that's our dedicated Facebook page for this podcast, and on Twitter at um, at hash at the um, sorry at um, podcast site is our Twitter handle. Um, you can tweet using the hashtag psyched podcast. I'll be looking for notifications and um, sharing your questions and comments with our guests. And I'm going to hand it off to Eric, who's going to introduce our wonderful guests. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, my name is Eric, and I'm also a school psychologist in Central Connecticut. And we are excited to have our uh, co-founders of Authentic Connections with us this evening. And I first heard about Authentic Connections through Rebecca, um, through discussions about um, their use of data and ability to support school districts um, with sort of uh, tracking and um, interpreting data on resilience and uh, emotional, social and emotional needs, um, uh, I believe for both students and adults. So I'm excited to actually get to talk with them. And I think you will be too, as uh, Rebecca mentioned, where um, we have been talking about resilience, social emotional learning, trauma, certainly the issues in our current events. And as we go into our Martin Luther King weekend, there's probably a lot on our mind about resilience and trauma and supporting students and adults. So um, we're super excited to have uh, Dr. Sunia Luther and uh, Nina Kumar with us. And they are co-founders of Authentic Connections. I'll just tell you a little bit about them. Dr. Luther is, uh, has a PhD from Yale University where she was also on faculty in the Department of Psychiatry and the Yale Child Study Center. She was also on faculty at Columbia Teachers College until 2013, where she served as senior advisor to the provost. Um, between 2014 and 2019, she was a uh, uh, foundation professor of psychology at, at Arizona State University. Her research involves vulnerability and resilience among various populations, including youth in poverty, children and families affected by mental illness and youth programs, especially mothers in high achieving pressured communities. And Nina Kumar, co-founder of Authentic Connections is committed to fostering the welfare of girls and women. And she's volunteered for mentorship programs benefiting middle school, high school and college students. 
and she has a BA in computer science and psychology um, with concentration in an honors in cognitive science. So, and she's also worked uh, in computers with uh, IBM uh, as well. So welcome to both of you. And I, I guess I would like to start off just asking how Authentic Connections came about and perhaps maybe a brief overview of um, what Authentic Connections can do for us as school professionals. Do you want to start, Sonia? Do you want me to start? Sure, I'll start. Well, Authentic Connections started with us stealing Nina after her wonderful um, education at Williams, where she got this background of computer science and psychology. It was a perfect fit applying it to the field broadly. And she was, at the time, working with IBM Watson. And we, on our end, I'm sort of old school, and I used to do the hard copies and then maybe surveys that maybe assess three or four schools a year. When Nina came on board, she brought her expertise and uh, skills in just allowing us to broaden with just, I hate to say this, it sounds like I'm boasting, but I'm not boasting about myself, top-notch you know, efficiency and accuracy and, and clarity so that we were able to expand and do way, way more than I was certainly able to do on my own. So that's how we got, we stole her from IBM. Yeah, we stole her from IBM and then essentially, I'm fortunate to say Nina took over as the helm on she runs the show and I do the research end of thing. You know, am I is that a fair generally? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. So the work that we do is to really drive improvements in mental health in schools. And the way that we do that is by running surveys to come back to to schools with top suggestions for how they can improve resilience and well-being in their schools. So with that, essentially what we do with all of our surveys is look first at indices of mental health because we know that students aren't gonna be able to learn, faculty and staff aren't gonna be able to teach and help students if they're not doing well mentally. So we start with mental health and we look at things like anxiety and depression. And then we look at all of these different modifiable aspects of student life, faculty and staff life, anything that we can change. And we assess all of that to then distill down at a given school, what is most linked with mental health? What of these many different facets of life can we work on and can we change to improve mental health? And with that, what we also do is we've started layering in some open-ended responses. So we essentially ask what's going well at school, what are top areas for improvement and what are your biggest worries to then read through all of the res those responses, code them up into categories, and come back to schools with some converging evidence to be able to say, this is where we really think you should be focusing to improve mental health within your school. If I may add to that, I think the point that Nina's making is a very important one, the specificity issue. I have studied this thing called resilience for some 35 years now, and resilience is essentially doing well in the face of hardship and adversity and stress. That's what the definition is. We in the business of resilience have frequently been criticized for making long lists of risk and protective factors. This matters and that matters and X, Y, and Z matters. And what, we, what communities need, especially times like this, but generally any community or family or person under stress, what we all need is uh, uh, solutions that are geared at our specific sets of issues, challenges, problems, and strengths. And so just as you would assess a family, strengths and strengths and where are the perturbances in the same way we come to communities and that's when you bring in the 
research background of all these years uh, with the Nina's computer expertise and her, 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 her ability to do all this and then come back with that level of specificity to each school community and say, let's work collaboratively now and figure out what we can do to address these top priorities. It's so cool. And I just want to share a little bit about how I stumbled upon Authentic Connections because um, at the time I was the only school psychologist in my school pre-K through ninth grade. And I found your a webinar that you presented for the National Association of Independent Schools um, and where you, you presented your work and, and what you were able to, the data you were able to collect from schools and how you were able to help different communities um, improve student outcomes and mental health outcomes for kids. And um, at, the, at the time, you know, we were also, my school, I was trying to collect data on how my kids were doing because we knew anecdotally, especially our more vulnerable kids, were experiencing more anxiety than we might, you know, expect and uh, more maybe risk-taking behaviors and, and you know, so the kids that we were concerned about, we knew anecdotally that something was going on. But what we always say on School Psych Podcast is what gets measured is what matters. And so you, your um, presentation really inspired me to say, well, wow. Now, rather than me coming up with a Google form and trying to figure out, like, how do, what do I do with all this data that I then collect? You had this um, way, you know, this beautiful system of, of really sophisticated data collection. Can you tell us a little bit, and the last thing I want to mention too is um, my school in uh, Connecticut um, uh, was part, it was in a group of uh, Fairfield County schools that were um, collecting more data on behavioral health. And um, at the time, The Price of Privilege was a book that had just come out. And we were realizing that um, kids, even kids in high SES um, communities were really vulnerable to um, certain mental health challenges. And um, and so you had at the time a, a survey called the High Achieving Survey that was really specific to a community like mine. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about resilience in different populations and how resilience um, it, within a community, depending on the specific community, is either the same across um, groups or, or different for different populations? Well, let me just start with saying uh, thank you for mentioning the uh, presentation. So yes, we so do the higher training school survey. And um, there's a reason why we set it apart from other surveys that we do as well. I began my career in inner city, urban inner city uh, settings and schools. The set of issues that those young people face are very different from the set of issues that students like in your schools face. And uh, essentially, it's taken 25 or 30 years to establish this now as a fact. It is in the National Academies of Science. There's a report called Vibrant and Healthy Kids received, uh, released last year. And high-achieving school kids are now uh, counted as a vulnerable group, at-risk group, along with kids in dire poverty, kids in foster care, kids whose parents have been incarcerated. So now there's an acknowledgement, there's a broader societal thing going on. It's not just, you know, one, uh, one New York City or LA or one community or one private independent school or public school. This has been acknowledged as a set of stressors that are unique to this high achieving, high pressure, uh, very talented often, ambitious uh, set of uh, uh, students and families. 
So the measurement of issues, therefore, then has to be relevant, right, to the specific issues and challenges that occur here, which are not the same as the kids in the university. So that's what the hygiene school survey does. And Nina and I just published last year in the American Psychologist a review paper summarizing what these challenges are and what our approach is to addressing them in ways that can be changed. Um, Nina, did you want to add to that anything about the HASS survey? No, I think I think you covered it. I think that the the things that we're looking at often, you know, they do apply to a lot of schools. But when we're looking at things like envy um, and just social comparisons, I think they're elevated in these communities in ways that we we are seeing across the country, but even more so in these high achieving communities, the sense of social comparison and need to compare oneself to others. So there are universals. I mean, unkindness hurts all kids whether they're rich or poor and in between, there are some universals and there are some specifics. As Nina pointed out, envy, social comparisons, tolerance of substance abuse. There are a lot of these issues that are really much more specific to hygiene school communities. Have you found that as you've been studying resilience itself, that the factors that um, increase the likelihood that a child will bounce back or become, you know, stronger through adversity are different in different populations? Or do you feel like those resilience factors are, um, are pretty much universal to kids? What an excellent question. So there's one universal, and this is almost like a stone. Resilience rests fundamentally on relationships. That's number one. So if you can have the best coping skills and the grit and the perseverance and whatnot, ultimately the single most important. From there you go, so what about relationships? And the most proximal relationships are closest to you, family, extended family, peers, school, all of that's most important. Then you go to, so what aspects of those relationships? And that's where you start seeing some differences, permissiveness, tolerance of substance use, uh, overly high expectations, like in our schools and our communities, overly high expectations from parents, from teachers, self-expectations. That's when you start seeing the specificity of things. So it's a sort of long, long answer to your question. There are generalities, which are sort of what grandma could have told us, that, you know, unkindness hurts, meanness hurts, and then you get into much more specific stuff depending on the community. That's number one, and Nina was pointing this out to me yesterday, even within our broad band of high achieving school communities, obviously you find differences. It's just like you compare two families in your community. There'll be some similarities and there'll obviously be differences. In the same way, from one community to the next, you might find teacher support is particularly salient here or alienation is particularly salient in the other. Our job is to take all those data in the most scientifically rigorous way to still down to you what are the priorities in your particular community. We had a viewer question that wanted to know uh, the type of data that you're collecting as far as, are you getting self-reports from um, students? Is it teacher reports, parent reports? Um, I'm, I'm wondering too if, if that's dependent upon the age of the population that you're, that you're working with. So what type are you? It's all self-report data. So students, students fill out the survey. We have a survey that's grade six and up, and then another one that's two through five. And then we have a faculty survey, faculty and staff within a school, and then one for parents too. And they all fill it out themselves. Yes, last spring, um, it, it, during the 
you know, chaos of, of uh, pandemic schooling and adjusting to, you know, ever-changing conditions, uh, my school was really lucky to do the um, resilience surveys, the faculty resilience survey and the student resilience survey six through nine. And um, it really gave us, you know, a, a really good view on not only how everyone was doing, but what we could do as, a, as an administration and a community to, um, you know, to support people's sense of belonging and uh, well-being. And, you know, of course, for all of us, that was no easy task. But uh, can, can you tell us in general a little bit about, about that, the surveys from last spring and, and what you noticed in terms of measuring different schools? I know you have, you know, thousands and thousands of participants by now. What, what did you find as you were doing the, the resilience surveys during the pandemic last spring? Sure, I can start. I should also say that we are doing the first administration of that student resilience survey or the faculty resilience survey free of charge for schools as long as we can sustain it. We are running up against bandwidth issues, but we are trying to help as many schools as we can right now. Um, but to answer your question, Becca, I think the first thing that we saw that we all noticed was when we looked at rates of anxiety and depression from 2019 among students sixth grade and up, they dropped right when the pandemic started. So it seemed that once tests got canceled, once extracurriculars were canceled, kids weren't running from a full school day to hours of extracurriculars to hours of homework, anxiety and depression initially dropped off. Um, when we were just starting to see among adults burnout, rates of exhaustion at work, stress generally rising. Um, so we've seen with the kids, it's it kind of did a dip and now it's going back up. And among adults, we've seen a pretty solid rise in burnout and stress. When the holidays came, things became a little bit more relaxed and we saw things go down a little bit, uh, but we're monitoring it pretty closely. And I, I think, Sonia, do you wanna talk a little bit more about this? But we're, we're, we're really concerned about faculty burnout right now because across schools, we've just been seeing it really skyrocket as the pandemic progress has been progressing. Yeah, yeah. And just to add to Nina's saying about anxiety, depression, burnout, we're talking about clinically significant levels here. So when Nina said rates have gone down, we're talking about high clinically significant depression rates, anxiety in 2019 were higher than those early in the pandemic and school closures. And part of that is, you know, so was, you know activities can, kids were sleeping longer, they had more flexible schedules. And interestingly, this notion of social comparisons was possibly eased. You're not going to be the kid who's left out of the lunch table. So a lot of things did get eased. And again, as she said, was the pressures on faculty just kept increasing over time. The juggling of multiple schedules, you have kids of your own, you have a virtual format, an in-person format, worry about your own health. And the, the dimension on which we saw just as kids went down, faculty growing up was emotional exhaustion. Not overall stress, but emotional exhaustion. I'm an educator and a mother, and to try and put myself in that situation with young kids at home and teaching young kids or even teenagers, and what everybody demands of you as a caring educator and teacher, there was a great deal on there, and is. So we started off, I think, about one in five, as I remember, in March, went up to as much as 40% at one point of serious burnout among all. We ended up maybe 6,000 uh, school-based adults we studied so far, and some 21,000 kids. So that's the level of numbers that we're talking about. 
all over the country. Okay, short answer is the kids went from higher in 2019 to lower in the beginning of the pandemic and it's risen. Teachers started off lower, teachers, faculty and staff lower on burnout and that has risen and not dipped a little bit, but I'm very, very, very concerned about this. As I said, trauma-based schools, what does that mean? Teachers help us with, emo with the emotional issues. Educators are not expected to not just teach, but be as you do, as we do, as we expected to do and we should do. Be there as an emotional scaffolding for our students as well. That's all fine and dandy, but where do we go? You know, we're not we're not machines. We're not what is it? Ever it was a bunnies? What is it called? Energizer bunnies. We have to get replenished somewhere, and there's not enough thought given by far to uh, who takes care of those caregivers, who tends these people who are giving so much of themselves on an everyday basis. That's what Nina said. She said, you want to talk about this? She knows I get off. <laughs> the moment someone asks me about this, I feel very, very strongly. It's very under-recognized, the role that teachers and educators play in keeping our children safe and healthy, psychologically and physically right now. I so agree. And last year, um, when the pandemic was raging and things were so up in the air, um, a lot of us looked to the literature on other school crises, like um, you know hurricanes and uh, you know all kinds of of. of you know, there's very sort of limited data on school crises and and how and how people. Um, either struggled longer or became resilient um, through the crises and what helped. But, but the one thing that was consistent was that if the adults are okay, then the kids are gonna be okay. And that, that sentiment that we learned also through the surveys with you really informed our return to campus plan um, that we worked on all summer. Um, which also probably increased the burnout because normally we don't work all summer. Um, but you know, as at least as administrators, um, the, the a lot of the focus was on okay, what? How can we make sure that we welcome our teachers back to school and give them what they need to prepare for the year? So, as you've been measuring the adults, what if what are the kinds of things? that you have found that you are able to recommend to schools to intervene on that, that do make a difference in adult well-being? Um, Sabina, you want to go? Okay. Sure. I can start. There, there are a couple of things that we've been seeing, you know, with adults. I think the first thing that, and I know Sonia will talk more about this, and she speaks, but uh, be just feeling supported and offering support for caregivers within the school setting. So it's not something that you have to add to your schedule, but within your responsibilities within the school, having the opportunity to feel supported, whether it's within a counseling group or some sort of support group, so that folks are relying on each other and not trying to do this alone. I think one thing that we've seen a lot at schools right now with so much uncertainty is communication has come up quite a bit in that I think a lot of faculty and staff right now really appreciate even just hearing from administrators that they don't know what's going to happen, but they're thinking about X, Y, and Z issues. Hearing the honesty to say, you know, I haven't quite figured this out yet, but this is on my mind has been really helpful within a lot of schools, I think, to just keep a sense of honesty and vulnerability and 
keep momentum moving forward because there is so much unknown right now. But I think being able to say that is something that has helped a lot of school administrators to comfort um, the school community as a whole. So of course she said I'm going to say more about that and I'm going right back to it is the support is the one of the biggest thing was the support from administrators. It's almost like if you think about it, just like well, what the students were saying is I want more support from my parents and my teachers. What the faculty and staff are saying is that administrative concern and support was one of the most important things for them. And as Nina pointed out, there's lack of clarity of communication or absence of communication that tended to be something that was particularly troublesome. So it is really the same principle as nothing, just like children need love and support and ongoing communication, so do we. I don't care how old we are, or how famous we are, how bright we are, or how anything we are, we all need it. And like your school, being so sensitive to and open to this kind of feedback and putting in place mechanisms, acknowledging that, yeah, summertime there's going to be extra strain. What can we do to shore up our, our, our faculty and give them something to boost, uh, boost them around? and their sense of uh, energy as this continues on. I have a question. Um, so uh, this comes from, I was recently reading a blog and it was a reading researcher and um, he takes questions from teachers and whatnot and they had written in, somebody had asked about, is this particular thing um, a, an adequate intervention for reading? And um, his response was, he differentiated between kind of a tier two and a tier one intervention, and he made the analogy to healthcare professionals. And he said that, you know, for kind of a tier one, you go and see your doctor for a well visit, you know, they're going to tell you preventative, they're going to say, you know, watch your diet, exercise on a regular basis, like all these things that we know that correlate to, um, you know, stronger health outcomes and longer life and, and things like that. But he said that if you go in to see a doctor because you have a problem, um, they're not going to give you these things that correlate to outcomes. They're going to give you things that are proven through experimental studies, you know, this medication, this, mm -hmm. this particular treatment, that there's a difference in, um, uh, you know, the, the data, what you're looking at for, you know, tier one kind of wellness for everybody and a tier two intervention. So I've just been kind of thinking about that that concept in relation to school psychology and the types of recommendations that we make and and things like that. Do you find, um, is that the same then for, for things like resilience? Are there kind of tier one resilience strategies that are maybe a little bit looser on the, on the, the evidence behind them and like interventions that maybe uh, have more or, or does that not make any sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And there is a direct parallel, uh, Rachel, in the, in the scientific world, prevention science, they're called universal interventions and more targeted interventions. So just when we go to a school of, like Rebecca's school, maybe 2,000 kids or 500 kids, there are big issues that we find statistically are strongly related to kids' well-being. So we know these are big issues. Take closeness to teachers, support from teachers, or alienation, or being bullied, any one of these, right? Then you get to the next step, and this is where Nina's genius comes in, where we're able to drill down to write, uh, so which are the kids who are most uh, likely to be, in the, who most are in that clinically depressed, anxious group, or feeling the most victimized, and so on. So we are able to drill down on at least two demographics, sixth grade girls, you know, boarding school, uh, you know, eighth graders on two demographics. Once you then identify those children who are uh, vulnerable on 
mental health outcomes, you're also seeing side by side with dementia, those risk and protective factors where you're seeing elevations. And that's when you bring the targeted interventions. And so it's all science-based, all data-based on the universal end as well as the, um, as well as the targeted end. Nina, did I make sense? And then I also had another thought. Um, I've floated the idea of, of using more universal screeners and whatnot at my, uh, in my school. Sometimes the response that I get is along the lines of like, we don't want to open that can of worms. Like we don't have the resources. Say we give the survey and we identify that a large chunk of this population, like we need something to happen there. Or we identify this kid, this kid, and this kid, and oh my goodness. And they, they feel like they don't have the resources to intervene. So we're not going to touch that yet because we can't do any, or we feel like we can't do anything like that. Um, thoughts on, on that? Obviously, that's not a good <laughs> mentality, but um, are, how, how do you kind of prepare yeah, schools for, okay, here is what this data says, like to make them feel like, okay, we, we know what, we're what, what the prescription is kind of, and like that we can meet these needs. Another excellent one. You folks really have some great questions. This is another outstanding one. I think part of the approach, uh, Rachel, is being collaborators. We are not here as data people who will come and throw numbers at you. I'm a mom, and I feel the pain of these children and of the parents. Every, every business, I've been there, done that. So when I come with, Anita comes with numbers, it's not saying, okay, here's your report card. Now go figure it out. This could have been me, their but for the grace could have been me and my children and my community. So that's where you first come in with that and people who work with us, I hope Rebecca will attest to this, we come with heart as well as science. You know, so I completely understand a school head or a board saying, I'm not sure we want to go there. And my response is, as a mother, if I sense my, my children are in difficult, my family is, I don't want to see it. God knows I want to want to hear that my child is cutting herself or God forbid wanting to hurt herself or himself. But ultimately, if I don't know, how can I help not how am I going to help them? So one just has to get past that fear and trust that we can do this together in a collaborative, supportive way, and always, always, always explain to you why we're saying what we're saying with respect and protecting confidentiality. So I think it's a very valid concern that just like any parent would have that any school leader would have. I'm not sure I want to go there. And our response is, we'll go with you, hand in hand, and slowly and carefully. Nobody jumps. Yeah. The other thing I'd say is when we do give back recommendations to schools, that is something that we're completely conscious of. And so we never recommend additional, you know, putting additional resources somewhere else. You know, we always try to give recommendations that, that the school can implement immediately after leaving the meeting without having to overhaul any programs or redo anything. You know, there are things that are bigger to tackle, like relationships sometimes are more messy than just tactical changes in a school schedule, for example. But we never try to, we're always conscious of that because especially at this time, everybody is just stretched so, so thin. Mm -hmm. So anything that anybody can do right now just needs to be a, a small effort that can hopefully have a big impact within the school. Yeah, I just want to chime in to say when I pitched the plan to my admin team, um, you know, it was that hard that these are our children. And we know, like I said, anecdotally, that some of them are struggling. And 
we cannot turn a blind eye to this. We need to find out and we need to tell our parent community and all hands on deck to help kids. And it was a no brainer. They all, everybody was like, okay, let's go. You know, it took it, the logistics of it took a long time, but, um, but you know, when you put it that way, and I, I will say the interventions are very um, doable. Mm -hmm. You said something that was very important, Rebecca. It's how you convey it. Yeah. You know, Nina and I have a message, but what you brought to your team was that combination where you use the word heart. Somehow you brought that in and they said, otherwise it would not have happened. So yeah. that's a critical component and good for you. Yeah. It was really it was really moving to see the admin team so fully on board because you know I felt very moved by wanting to to do this and just have been, having them feel the same way was really powerful to me. You know, it, it, that in itself increases our sense of togetherness and community. We care about kids. That's why we're in this business. And one thing before, you know, when I did a little research for that admin presentation, and I called some other schools that used the survey. Uh, another school had told me that they discovered, for example, in their middle school, specifically girls that felt not as close or that they couldn't speak, they couldn't talk to their mothers, they had higher rates of, of symptoms. Um, and so what that school did was began, began to teach in their parent community, to have workshops for parents with their, with their school counselors, with their people already on staff to help um, teach parents of younger girls, relationships matter. Here's how you talk to your kids. And I thought that was so powerful because prevention, that's what we want, right? And it's, certainly we want intervention when we know kids are struggling. But if we can know ahead of time that in our community, here's what happens as girls turn into teenagers. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just super powerful. There's another thing that's sort of implicit tacit in what you just said, no judging. There's no judging anywhere. I'm not going to come and teach you parenting skills. You know, we're going to talk and understand understand what the research says, the numbers say, and, but it's always done with gentleness and tenderness and care because these are scary, hurtful issues and not easy to think that you might be hurting your child unwittingly. So that's what you said again was very important is the care with which this is delivered to the parent community. I really like that. I, I think, uh, you know, sometimes there's anxiety with uncovering things, right? And and so if if we can come at that gently, we can build buy-in and and I, you know, just goes along with the title of your organization, Authentic Connections, right? So um that's that's really wonderful. And and I find individually that's how we connect with our parents, right? So if we can do this on a broader level with teachers and with with parents, um with a broader lens or or maybe a more specified lens on specific variables, um, which makes me wonder what um, what specific variables do you look at and then how do you present that as a uh, package, um, your, your research when you've done the surveys and um, how do you sort of put that together and, and um, shows teachers and staff um, where the variables fall, vulnerabilities and, and resiliency factors? Well, as, as Nina pointed out at the start of this, all the things we look at have this one thing in common, that they're all modifiable. We don't look at things like commute to school. I mean, maybe that's important, but you can't change that. So then there are three categories of relationships, which as I said, 
there is uh, parents and peers and overall school climate. Within each of these, it could be anywhere from 10 sets of questions, constructs to, I don't know, school climate or where are we at, the number 15 odd, because that's yeah. how we can make the most difference. So now you add up these, we've got maybe 25, 30, 40 different constructs or potential causes, teacher alienation, feeling bullied, feeling loved, all of these, analyze them, let the computer battle it out and say in this community, which is the most strongly linked, then Nina and I will typically used to actually go on the road, but now we do it together on these webinars. We lead people through the findings, explaining how we got them, explaining the numbers, and then working through telling them what the recommendations are. Very concrete, very specific tied to the data. Rebecca, would you agree? That's the general, did I, did I make anything up? Yeah, no, I, I think it's true. And I um, I think that the, if um, Nina could describe the dashboard, it's such a, um, a helpful way to look at the data and sort by different variables. So you get um, very specific, um, you know, specific groups plus the, the specific um, construct that you're measuring. Sure, I can talk to that. So when we work with any given school, what we do is give back a set of interactive dashboards that let you see everything that we're looking at. So within each kind of bigger dimension, we're looking at a number of things, as Sonia mentioned. So within school climate, it may be things like respect for diversity. It may be feelings of discrimination, feeling like the school um, you know, fosters inclusion. You, things like that. So we look at a number of things, think also around relationships, parent relationships, peer relationships, school climate relationships, and then show a school where they are relative to schools nationally. So what we do is we distill down essentially for each of these variables we're examining, the group of students that we should probably be more concerned about. So what we call in the red zone. So who may be saying, you know, that they're feeling embarrassed or humiliated by teachers you know, in the, in the kind of often range, often or very often range. So we look at these groups of students and then compare across schools. So any school would be able to see, you know, what portion of my students are responding this way relative to students nationally or students regionally now we can do too, or by school type, whether it's an independent school or a public school or boarding school. Um, so with that, what we get is some specificity so you can see where your school is relative to other schools, but then we also let you break that down. So you get to those demographic groups that are doing very well on things and those groups that may need some more attention. So we can see, for example, how is anxiety varying by grade or by gender or by ethnicity and which of these groups are you know, really doing well right now and which do we need to be spending some more time with. Um, and when we get that data over time, I think that's when this becomes even more useful because you can see, for example, by class year. So we were we were talking to a school the other day that had two or three time points for data collection. And we were able to see last year we were talking about the 10th graders standing out. And this year that group was in 11th grade. And we were able to see that it was actually not something about that group at this particular school. It was the 10th grade. So this year, 10th grade was standing out just as last year, 10th grade stood out. So we were able to have some more conversations about what is it, you know, about that 10th grade year in your school that could be, you know, 
contributing to this and look at the open-ended responses to be able to see what can we change about 10th grade. You know, at this particular school, it happened to be that they didn't have a counselor. Every other grade had a counselor that was kind of working more on hands-on with them. So we were able to change that with the school and then hopefully we're gonna see next year what happens. But there've been a number of situations like this where getting that targeted information and breaking it down to be able to see how a specific group is doing lets us make better, more impactful changes within a school. So sort of the opposite of shooting in the dark, you get very, very specific. So we start with who are the most depressed and anxious, find them, the subgroups, like you said, ninth grade girls or whichever group, and then you see how they're doing and all these risk and protective factors, put all of that together and say, okay, your folks, this is what we're gonna target for that group of kids. I can see how this is something that, yeah, the consult with the two of you is is so important. I have a lot of um, issues with teachers and administrators not interpreting data in or or finding things in there that aren't maybe real things or kind of this, um, you know. So yeah, when Rebecca said um, that concept of the school that found that maybe uh, uh, not having a parent that they feel like they can go to. And so, okay, let's go and intervene and, and support the parents. And, and so that brought me back to my correlation type of or correlation or causality. You know, do we know that an intervention on that will, you know, obviously those two things on the survey are correlated, but is increasing that, that relationship going to result in, you know, better outcomes um, down the road would be, you know, a question that I, I think that, yeah, you would need to consult with somebody who who's more familiar with the literature to tease that apart. Exactly, and who knows the science. You say, when you tell me the correlation or causation, Rachel, I'll come back to you with 25 or 30 studies telling you that alienation is not a good thing. So whether correlation of when you be alienated from your parents, your teachers, and then being unkind or embarrassing or humiliating you, I don't care what how many said, all the studies will tell you it's not a good thing. So this is what it helps to have, and it's a very healthy and good skepticism. So what is cause and what is effect? And we can come back with that combination because I do have the science at my, I've been doing it for a long time, right? To say, this is how we come up with these contributions and, 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 and talk people through it. Yeah, and, and I think too that, Rachel, as you point out, we would wanna measure, okay, so here's what we changed. I think, you know, pandemic, everything changes all the time. So it's a, maybe a little trickier, but if we did that intervention, if we if we taught parents some relationship skills with their preteenage ch children, um, then we would want to do that same measure again and see. It still would be, you know, a little bit, of, I think, of a correlation to, to say, you know, that's what had the effect. But if we found that things were improving over time, I think that that would be, you know, great news. And um, uh, another part of the survey that I thought was really powerful was the qualitative um, part. So um, at the end of the survey are just open-ended questions. Uh, uh, could you explain a little bit, um, uh, both of you or either of you, how you analyze the qualitative data? Yeah, before we go on, to, I just want to go back to this correlation causation thing. What you talked about was like experimental data. You know, you have a cause, you change it, and things improve. But even assuming, Rachel, it's a bi-directional thing, I feel bad with my mom and I'm depressed. The other thing is if I'm depressed, I, I feel distant from my mom and my mom gets more alienated from me. So either way, the cycle has to be broken. And if the best way to do it is the most responsive people are the parents, it may, may be sometimes easier to get through to a mom or a dad than to a 
a, a, a distressed or a quiet 13 year old, we go there. On the open-ended questions, does that make sense what I'm saying? Uh, the correlation causation? Nina, did you want to go with the open-ended? Sure, so with the open-ended data, what we, what we've done is we've developed a taxonomy to essentially code all of these responses that come through. So we ask for both students, faculty, parents, we ask everybody essentially what's going well, what are your top worries, and what are areas for improvement. And what we've done is develop this way of coding the data so that we can then link it back to the quantitative data. So we read through every response line by line and essentially code it into up to three categories to be able to say that students are at a lot of schools we're seeing you know students really love the emotional support they're getting from teachers and faculty and at other schools we see that they want more of it and they're not getting enough of it um, so we read through all of the responses to then code them up into different categories so that we can come back to schools and say this is what's top of mind at your school this is what students think is really going well this is what they really want in terms of areas for improvement and these are their top worries. And I think having the knowledge of those things, I think especially for psychologists and school counselors right now has been really, really helpful because with this, you know, whether school is in distance learning or with masks on, what I've been hearing from, from school psychologists and counselors is that they're not getting as much from students in terms of what they're thinking about, what's going wrong. And so having this, this data being equipped with you know, straight from the students, the students' minds, what is top of mind, I think has equipped counselors to have some of these conversations with students yeah. that haven't been coming up as, as naturally or organically with the distance learning and, and with masks during this period. One important quick, again, adding to what Nina's saying, we categorize, but you can click on the category and read the verb or term whole, could be five, five lines, could be a paragraph, so you're literally hearing from the students and the faculty directly. That's fantastic. I really, it's uh, just impressive to hear um, how you code the anecdotal data as well, and and then you can uh, just dive into it as you as you look through the data. That's really amazing. Um, and I, I think you know, as you're speaking, I'm just sort of envisioning how valuable this is. Um, you know, for for all of us who sometimes maybe flounder with, you know, bits and pieces of social and emotional information or emotional needs at a building level or a district wide level. And um, I think it's really valuable to be able to have that uh, data across the school or across the school district. Um, and then, you know, you have the data to be able to compare that across the country. Um, and during this pandemic, I'm sure that's really valuable to see that you know, even though this is abnormal, it's normal or, or common for all of us to be experiencing some of some of this anxiety as well. Um, we had a number of people ask questions and um, I'm just gonna read a couple as we um, just segue for a second. Um, one of our viewers asked, what is the hardest quality that you have measured? Hardest to measure quality? I think, or, or hardest that has been measured? Um, that, that could maybe, we have in the past episodes, you know, talked about how quantifying things and making it observable and measurable yeah. and, um, you know, psychometrics behind something. So that might be um, where that's coming from. I don't know. I would say the, the, 
creating the open-ended taxonomy and the way that we code that has been probably the most difficult to make because some we had to in making it and in putting you know rules of how we're going to classify things we had to really dig deep into what what you know where students and faculty and staff are coming from with this during this time so i think that that was probably the hardest thing to quantify because we are trying to quantify how much faculty emotional support students are looking for or how much they're worried about academic performance right now and so we, we've had to do that it's also hard because at an emotional level both me all of our team as the pandemic started to now every single response is read and sometimes what the children and the people say is very very moving so it's hard at the at the, at the scientific level and quantifying but it's also very moving and uh, ultimately the fact that we're doing this work makes us get through it but it is difficult you know is that correct yes and um, the viewer responded, yes, uh, making things measurable is what they were looking for. So <laughs> wonderful. Uh, another viewer asked, uh, can this be used as SEL qualifications for government grants? So I think as we're all moving toward expanding our um, knowledge, understanding and interventions for social and emotional learning, yes, we we have used our surveys in the past for government grants for we I'm not sure about. I think we have used for SEL, but I'd have to check. We'd be happy to work with any school to make sure that the survey meets any requirements. I know that we have been used in the past for the Drug Free Communities Grant, um, but there are a number of others that I'm sure we can we can work with schools and districts on to make sure that, that this would be covered. Yes, and the answer is yes, we have done, and our, our, we are not we're not fixed in stone on anything. So people come yeah. and say, we've had data on these questions for the last five years, so great, we'll add the question in. We'll make sure it's measured. That's wonderful. Thank you. We've just got another question. Um, we mentioned comparing anxiety and depression from spring 2020 um, to the to the previous year. So in my school, I haven't done that, but you, I know you all have been doing the survey um, in schools for, for years. Do you have any similar comparisons for the fall now that schools um, are back to person in some degree. Yes, 2019 we were here, then we went down to here, and we're back up to here, and maybe nudging to even above that. So we had a reprieve, and it's it's gone up, and I think, unfortunately, it's growing. I mean, as long as the pandemic continues and all the other instabilities and so on continue, uh, kids are getting more and more, all the more reason to measure, measure, measure and get back and address in a, in a focused way. Yeah, and I feel like this pandemic, um, I think a lot of us knew that it was gonna be kind of a long haul, but I'm not sure is that we all really fully understood how long this was gonna be, especially, I mean, you know, vaccines are on the horizon for many of us, but then it's like, oh yeah, but we have children and, and that's maybe months and months after that. So I think that, you know, when we, when we left our offices in March and schools were shut down and we brought our, books and our, you know, things home with us. I don't think that any of us in our minds thought that, I mean, I'm still virtual. Yeah. Um, I'm potentially to be virtual the whole year. I'm not sure is that we understood the scope of this and this is going to continue on. This is not going away. <laughs> Two things. It's not a sprint. 
it's a long marathon, one. And number two, even when we get the vaccine and we're all protected, think about the, the shock to the system of everybody going back to life as it was. People are unused to that now. So even if we get back to all of that, there is a great deal of social, emotional, psychological work that we're all going to have to do and come together to do uh, once this reintegration starts to happen in, in the old ways. Yeah, I think that, you know, masks are, are now a thing. I think they're going to be a thing for a long time. And um, it's a whole huge kind of cultural shift. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. I want to mention, and you'll hear me, uh, Psych Podcast fans, you'll hear me talk about this in the future more, but my colleague and friend Karen Baruch Feldman and I are working on a book for children on resilience called The Resilience Workbook for Children. And so we've been, re I, it's one of my favorite topics and I've been reading so much about it and just the importance for children, as you said, of relationships, but also community resilience. None of us, children or adults, can be resilient on our own. We need each other. And so I found in my school community, just the mere fact of asking people, children and adults, how are you doing? We're asking because we care, you know, uh, was really, really powerful in creating this sense of, of community. You know, we are in this together. This is a really difficult time. It's it's long and it's hard and we, we care. That in itself, made a difference for my school community. So, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of, <laughs> of the work. You are a gift to your community, just the way you put that out and say, we come together and we work together and we care. And that is the answer. Anyone who's able to mobilize everybody in that direction is a gift and clearly you've done that. Awesome. I think that we're gonna ask for like kind of last questions and comments as we start to wrap up. Um, I want to remind people our next podcast is going to be at 221. We're taking a break because I guess the Super Bowl is going on. I'm so out of the loop. I'm like, I think the Super Bowl is supposed to be a thing. Um, and we'll be back at 221 to talk about childhood anxiety and OCD. So that should be a really, uh, a really good one. Um, I was wondering, too, um, if the two of you could just in, in giving um, our viewers, you know, things that maybe they can think about implementing or changing, is there any kind of top recommendations of, you know, things that they should be looking at at their school? If, if say they are unable to, you know, access your awesome survey and, um, and use that to the full capabilities, what are things that people should be really mindful of when, when kind of uh, evaluating their own school system um, or, or things that are easy, maybe things that could be changed that have good effects? I think I think better than either of us could say it now. We, we, we wrote an article for the National Association of Independent Schools, a, a magazine article that came out um, in the fall issue that distilled everything that we learned from the spring, essentially, with, with top recommendations that we hope will be helpful for folks, even if they can't get actual data on on their schools and, and districts so I, I would point people to that if there is a way to do that um, but i'd say you know what we said before with fostering relationships and ensuring that the pillars of mental health within a given community feel supported themselves that i think is the top recommendation that we would give any school or district right now is to not just be thinking about you know improving improving mental health for the kids, but also more importantly, how can we support faculty and staff right now as, as they're getting through this trying time? 
Awesome. And I think that that's hard for us as, as caregivers because we do tend to want to look out for, for other people. And it's kind of, I, I can make an analogy to getting the, the vaccine out that we're, you know, going for um, adults first. And in my mind, I look at my children, I'm like, I, I would rather them have, have the vaccine right away. But of course, you know, we need to take care of ourselves. So. It's a critical thing. And yes, that is absolutely essential. And this is in the National Academy's report too. The most important thing is to make sure the adults who are taking care of the kids are doing well. Not the kids themselves, take care of them first, because then everything comes back to those people. So we need to get past this mindset and ask ourselves, am I being taken care of? How can I be better taken care of? Thank I you so much. Sorry. I was just going to thank you so much for um, for this presentation and this conversation. I think that's awesome. We've had we have a viewer asking um, to see maybe a screenshot or something of how the data and the dashboard would be presented. Do you have an example on a website or something that we could direct people to or? Sure. Yeah, our website is authcon.com, A-U-T-H-C-O-N-N.com. But I'm always happy to walk people through a demo of the dashboards or talk through any other questions that folks have. I, I want to say how much I respect what you're doing. This is really pretty outstanding, what you're doing here. Thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot. We love this, and we've loved this conversation. So we're really grateful for your time tonight. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the work you're doing. <laughs>